0: Hi everyone, before we jump into today's episode, I wanna tell you that I've produced an all new eight part docu-series with my dear friend and business partner, Dr. Mark Hyman called Broken Brain 2, The Body-Mind Connection. In this all new series, we go deep into topics like environmental toxins and how they impact our brain health. We also talk about all the new research out there on the heart-brain connection. We even have an entire episode on genetics and how to best personalize your diet based on your symptoms you're dealing with or your unique genetic makeup. This series is available for free starting April 3rd and I think you're gonna love it. We have over 80 experts from around the world who will totally change your understanding of what's possible when it comes to healing, optimizing and supporting our brain health. You can sign up for free anytime between now and April 3rd. Just go to brokenbrain.com. That's brokenbrain.com. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perroa. Today's guest on the podcast is Eddie Stern, yoga teacher and author and founder of the Brooklyn Yoga Club. He's credited with being one of the pioneers who brought Ashtanga yoga to the United States. If you Google him, you might also see that he's the yoga teacher and spiritual teacher for celebrities like Madonna and Gwyneth Paltrow. Eddie is here on the podcast today talking about the science of yoga and what it does to the body and specifically the brain. If you're a fan of yoga or even if you're a skeptic of yoga, this episode is for you. After listening to this episode, I promise you, you'll have one of the deepest understandings of how yoga supports the body in self-soothing, how it relaxes the vagal nerve, and how it specifically supports the brain. Eddie writes all about this and more in his new book called One Simple Thing, A New Look at the Science of Yoga, which is officially out, and we're going to talk all about it on today's podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. It means the world. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend, copy and paste it and share it on Instagram, or leave a review. It would mean the world. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, now on to my in-person introduction for Eddie Stern. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perowit. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live your best life. This week's guest is yoga rock star. That's how I see you, brother. Eddie Stern. Eddie Stern is a yoga teacher, author, and lecturer based in New York, Brooklyn, New York. He's known for his multidisciplinary approach to furthering education and access to yoga, as well as his teaching experience in Ashtanga Yoga. His book, One Simple Thing, A New Look at the Science of Yoga, is officially out, and that's what we're here to talk about today. Eddie Stern. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Drew. And thank you to our mutual friend, Aditi, for introducing us. Totally.
1: Shout out to Aditi.
0: I've heard her name, I've heard your name uh, for so long, and I've never had a chance to take your class, but I want to start our listeners off with the beginning. Okay. You know, I read that uh, over 30 years ago, you left your retail day job selling records at iconic Bleecker bobs to study yoga in India.
1: That's absolutely correct.
0: Take us back there. Why? Why did you leave for India?
1: Okay. Well, I left for India because I was on a spiritual quest. And back in those days, you only did yoga if you were searching for like the meaning of your life uh, or for enlightenment or anything like that. There was no fitness culture. There was no lifestyle culture developing around yoga. There were not yoga mats for sale anywhere. There weren't tons of yoga classes. You came to yoga because you were seeking to know who you were. And that was the quest that I was on. So um I was losing my luster working in a record store and I was losing my luster in my t-shirt printing business that I had started after high school. And when I started doing yoga, I felt, you know, this is what I'm looking for. This speaks to me and it speaks to my search. So this is what I'm going to devote myself to. And that was like when I was 20, so... How did your family
0: take it? I know you grew up in the Jewish tradition.
1: I grew up in the Well, we were an assimilated Jew family. So, um, which basically means in New York city, there were a lot of people, you know, wasn't being Jewish in America or anywhere in the world, especially after world war II was not a very, uh, you know, uh, glamorous thing to be. And my, um, I have a very deep and rich Jewish history from my family, um, my great grandfather was a very big Zionist and he was important in the formation of the State of Israel, um, helped to start the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And we have rabbis in our family stretching back to um, the Goan Vilna, who was a very important part of Jewish history. Uh, but my grandfather, who went to Harvard and got a degree in philosophy, was not so into that style of life and so he left that um you know that culture and that religion of his he moved to new york got married four times uh and (laughs) had my mother and sent her to a catholic school so this was a very this is a common trajectory in new york city history where people wanted to hide their judaism a little bit they didn't really Mm -hmm. practice that much and that's what i grew up in we i grew up celebrating christmas and easter um so even though i'm jewish by culture uh, and by religion, we didn't really practice it until my parents got divorced. Both got remarried, both had new sets of kids, and then all of a sudden found religion. So I actually got bar mitzvah last year, my fiftieth birthday. I heard
0: that. I heard that on your podcast yeah. with uh,
1: Tom Knowles. So um, I, um, you know, but so to answer your question, when I went to India to study yoga, no one was doing yoga back then. Nobody and
0: really knew what no, no.
1: They were worried about it. They yeah. were like, "You're not going to college, you're, so you'll never have success in life. You're going to like join some cult or something in yoga." They were quite concerned. And so honestly, it wasn't until about 10 years later when Madonna walked into my yoga class that my dad thought, all right, maybe he'll be okay. <laughs> so thank you, Madonna. I
0: want to hear about that story.
1: <laughs> what did you find in India? What I found in India was something that felt like home to me, uh, a spiritual home. The You know, I'm from New York City, so the chaos of India was not Um, shocking or disturbing to me. It was just different. But I'm used to chaos. And New York in the 1970s and 80s was not a safe place to grow up. Even though we navigated it and we managed to survive, we were very free. But there was, you know, New York was bankrupt for a long time. It was filthy dirty. It was filled with violent crime. It was like not the place that it is now. We had the whole punk rock movement and the whole downtown, you know, art movement. Soho was just, there were no streetlights practically in Soho. It was just like burned out practically. People living in, you know, in warehouse spaces creating art. Um And so that's sort of where I grew up in the village and in Soho. And uh, so I went to India. It wasn't like I was coming from this pristine place and like it was so shocking to me. Um so the culture shock didn't exist. But what I did find was um that there was this spiritual calling of India that I could feel in the atmosphere of the country. Yes, there's a lot of poverty, yes, there's a lot of inequity, there's a lot of illness, there's a lot of things that are really hard to take. It's true in America also. Um but in the temples of India I felt there was an energy there that spoke to me, and it was ineffable. But it changed me so that when I came back to New York, all of a sudden, New York City, I could see very clearly that everything in New York had been constructed through somebody's mind, like where the buildings were, where the garbage pails were, how everything was laid out was, was put through somebody's mind for us to live in. And I felt the sort of the oppression of that artificial constructed society, whereas in India, it was things were allowed to be chaotic.
0: It's like a beautiful chaos. Things were allowed to be
1: absolutely <laughs> organic, and still have structure and beauty and aesthetics. And you were faced with everything—with beauty and with poverty—at the same time. Nothing was being hidden, and I found that very freeing. Um, and um, you know, I don't paint the the problems that India faces with rose-colored glasses. You know, um, there's a lot of suffering. Uh, however, there is a deep Spirituality and a deep aesthetics and a culture that goes back thousands of years. And when you step into the country, you step into that culture and it changes you. Every time I come back from India, something changes in my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just got back from India last year and already things are changing. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. there in October and I came back. We got back from October, our trip, uh, we went all the way up high to Kedarnath, you know, 11,500 feet. And we got back to New York and we saw our life differently, and we're making massive changes. So, you know, India is called the karma Bhumi, so the the land of karma. You're born there to work out your karma. So when you go there, shifts occur in your life. Mm. Um, I, and I think all Westerners who go there, they find that kind of a thing, you know, especially the ones who are drawn there.
0: Yeah, I wasn't born in India, but I was born in Kenya, and uh-huh. my ancestry is Indian. And then the first time I went back was when I was uh, 12 years old. And uh, I think prior to that, I would, you know, normal brought up primarily in america would complain a lot would not be always grateful for things that i had and as a 12 year old boy you go to india and you see that extreme of everything all the beautiful things all the horrific things all the challenging things all the amazing things and you feel that vibration and you feel the the smiles and the beauty that the people have there and uh i came back and just thought i I'm so entitled Mm. (laughs) and I need to appreciate my life a little bit
1: more. There's a Um, dignity. There's a dignity. There's a dignity
0: there. I don't know if that was my parents' goal, but it worked. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, and also another thing, you come back from India and every time, like, I mean, not every time necessarily, but especially if you go there for the first time and you come back to America, wherever you live, everything's going to be extremely neat, clean, and orderly, even if you live in a busy city. So I thought, if for people who need to really, if they have a lot of stress in their lives and You know, they're super overwhelmed. They shouldn't go to the Bahamas on a yoga retreat. They should go to Calcutta for two weeks, get dysentery, like stay in a really like crappy (laughs) hotel, like filled with cockroaches. And, you know, when they come back to New York City or wherever they live, everything will be neat, clean, orderly, and function well. And, you know, they will have gotten over their stress problem.
0: The contrast will wake them up. exactly. How did you meet your yoga teacher?
1: Ah, well, I was in Mysore. And I was attending Vedanta lectures that were being given over the course of a week. And on the last day of the lectures, I was a little bit early. So I went into this bookstore. It was a communist bookstore right next to the Mohan Palace. And there was an old man in there who ran the shop. And he said, why are you in India? And I said, I've come to learn yoga. And he said, have you met Patabi Joyce? He's a great yoga master in Mysore. And I said, I haven't met him. So he gave me his address and, um, was, um, first cross Lakshmi Putam opposite the police station. So the next morning I got up, I mean, I was meeting yoga teachers wherever I could. And there, as I said, there were not a lot of yoga teachers that you could find in India in the 1980s. It was very rare. Old. Yeah. And with yeah. the intention
0: of one of them being your primary teacher? Well, goal? yeah,
1: I definitely, I was looking for a guru. Um, and, um. So the next morning I got up, I did my practice, I got in a rickshaw and I said, take me to the Lakshmi Purim police station, which was primarily to ensure that I got a good price also. And I got off at the police station. There was one street going down to the left. I walked down it, three houses, and I saw a small little sign that said, Ashtanga Yoganileam. I knocked on the door and um this fat guy wearing a dish towel opened the door and he said, yes, what do you want? And I said, I'm looking for Patabi <laughs> Joyce. And he said, that's me. And he was not at all what I expected. He was not at all what I expected. And he invited me in. We talked for a few minutes. Um, I asked him if I could practice with him. He said I had to come for a month. And I said, I'm leaving Mysore tomorrow. And he gave me his card and said, you can write me and come back next year. And I did. That was in 1990. So from 1991, I went to Mysore and studied with him every year until he died in 2009. But he wasn't what I was expecting in a teacher, you know. I had these ideas from all the Osho books that I had read, you know. And you were expecting autobiography of a yogi,
0: autobiography of yogi, a long beard, somebody sitting in lotus position. He wasn't what you're expecting from a teacher, and yet you learned some really beautiful lessons and core teachings from him. Not just yoga, which we'll talk about in a second. But uh, tell us about some of those things that you learned from him. One of them was. Uh, what you just shared, this idea that uh you know dissolving some of the identities and ideas that you have of what things should look like, what are the other things that you learned uh from from him as your teacher?
1: Well, I learned how to practice yoga uh number one and i I had done a bunch of different styles of yoga you know we didn 't think about styles of yoga back then so much we thought of like different. Gurus or different approaches, but things weren't really branded yet in the 1980s and early
0: 1990s. And had you any context for what Ashtanga Yoga was? No,
1: I had never seen it.
0: So once you started learning Ashtanga Yoga from him, and try and having had tried other styles before, what was it that really resonated with you with that approach? Well, I
1: felt like it was the first time I was ever doing yoga. Before, I I felt like everything up to then I was doing yoga poses and I was learning techniques, but the way that he was teaching, I felt it strung everything together. So it felt like a like real practice. I felt like I was doing real yoga. It's the only way I can describe it. And it's not that all the other yogas were not real. It just meant that for me, this felt like a real direct approach. Um, it was concentrated and concise. Um, the breathing put me deeply in touch with myself. And I just felt things coming together. And that's the only way. I, and that's why I stuck with it.
0: And at that moment, when did you have the realization that I want to bring this to more People, was there that realization while you were in India?
1: No, there was never that realization. Um, I only started teaching Ashtanga Yoga because people were asking me to teach them. I was very content to just practice. Uh, I had and been. In teaching, fact, that
0: was one of the things that your teacher, your Guruji, told you. He said, uh, "Don't teach anyone who doesn't ask to be taught."
1: Yeah, basically, uh, that's what he said. Um, and uh, I had been teaching Shivananda Yoga up until the time I met him. And then when I met him, I stopped teaching that style of yoga. And I was also teaching Achiva Mukti, which wasn't a style of yoga. It was basically Shivananda back then, Shivananda Yoga. And um, so I stopped teaching when I began studying with him because I just wanted to reorient myself back towards sadhana, towards doing practice. And um, after about a year and a half or two, and I learned quite quickly with him. Um, People were asking me if I would teach them, and I asked him what to do. And he said, you can go ahead and teach them. And his instructions were, um, don't advertise. If anyone asks you, you can teach them. If they don't ask you, then you don't have to teach. And he said, uh, don't it. don't change anything. Don't change anything. As I taught you, teach the same way. And it's been the same ever since? Pretty much, for the most part. Um, you know, now I have made, um, you know, I have different ways of approaching yoga now. Then when I was 20 and when I was 23, which is when I started with him, uh, I adapt things a lot more for people because I think that the style of yoga he was teaching us was very intense and it was not super user friendly. And I'd like to make things a little bit more accessible because I think yoga is very beneficial and I don't think anyone should be barred from doing it because of the demand on the body that it sometimes takes. So I modify things now. um, I create things in a way that allows people of all ages to access the benefits that yoga can provide without having to do anything too demanding on the body.
0: Beautiful. So I'm going to fast forward for a second. All right. Because we're going to talk about yoga in the brain. Uh, A few years ago, I believe it was a few years ago, there was a gentleman who came into your yoga studio and uh, told you that he wants to start doing some research on the impact of yoga and how it can actually uh, make a difference in people's lives. Uh, Marshall Haggins, Correct, right? Dr. T- Marshall Haggins. Tell us about him and what brought him into your studio and what quest that sent you both on.
1: Well, Marshall um, was, looking to do a research study on pre-hypertensive conditions in African-Americans. And he had heard that I might be a good person to put together a yoga protocol for that study. Um, So he came to me through one of my assistant teachers and um, he stopped by. We got into a conversation about what it was that he wanted to do. I had no prior science education. I mean, I have a high school education, and that was it. Then I went to India two years later and didn't go to college. So I was out of my sort of depths when it came to talking about anything with cardiovascular system. But uh, when we were talking about some of the neural controls of the cardiovascular system, he mentioned the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is really the only anatomical term that I'd ever heard my teacher use when he was talking about. Uh, the nervous system, and the Shishumna Nadi, which is the central column that the yogis talk about where you can, you know, when the prana flows or your energy flows in Shishumna, then you have a non-dual experience of reality. And he said that this Nadi is contained in the vagus nerve. So this vagus nerve thing stuck in my brain, um, even though I didn't know anything about the nervous system. And when Marshall brought up the vagus nerve, I thought, oh my God, he knows, you know, I need to talk to this guy. So we did this study together, and um, or I did the protocol, and he designed the study, of course. Um, there were, I believe, 84 people in the study, 68 completed them, and the results were quite good. The um, mercury points in sleeping diastolic blood pressure, which is a very important measure when it comes to hypertensive conditions, were dropping about um, four mercury points, which is significant. And um, overall, we had drops of about seven mercury points for diastolic and systolic combined, I believe it was. Um, And this is equivalent to some statin drugs as well. So uh, it was a small sampling of only 68 people, so not super powerful, but enough to... But how
0: research gets started, it's usually something small to try to generate excitement and enthusiasm.
1: But it definitely was a, statistically it was significant. Um, I don't you know I don't remember all the numbers exactly, but yeah. uh, definitely the sleeping mercury points were dropping about four or so. And but uh, just as
0: importantly, it kind of sent you know you having come from this background of just having a high school education and your own training and obviously hundreds, if not thousands of anecdotal stories and believing in yoga and seeing the transformation in your own life, it sort of sets you on a quest that sort of study was the f- was a little bit of an impetus down, um, at least the way that I understand in the book, leading to diving deeper into some of the science of yoga. Uh,
1: absolutely, because um, the, you know from that study, we went on to do another study um, with middle school students and then later uh, a study in a public school in the Lower East Side on grade point average. And I designed a protocol which was fairly similar to the blood pressure one. And we saw a 2.7% rise in grade point average for the students who had 40 weeks of the yoga program in comparison to students who had 40 weeks of a gym program. So I started saying, okay, there's something going on here with yoga uh, that you can do the same type of a thing, but somehow it's giving a positive effect on the mechanism that you're targeting and how is that happening. And the only thing that I could figure was it has to be happening in the nervous system, that they're because um, the ability to have focused attention is going to be dependent on the state of your nervous system. If you're in hyperarousal from the sympathetic nervous system, you are releasing adrenaline and particularly cortisol, which is going to attach to receptors in the prefrontal cortex, which are going to impair your ability to have focused attention, strategic planning, any of these types of things necessary to do your homework, for example. and In fact, we, the
0: way you've, you've described it, I can interrupt, is that yeah. I've heard you on a podcast before say, you know, especially with school children, since you're mentioning that, is that we always, you know, yell at kids or parents or teachers saying, focus, pay, yeah. attention. pay attention, pay attention. But it's like the analogy that you gave was,
1: well, we teach you how to tie your shoelace, mm-hmm. but nobody teaches kids how to pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. We say pay attention all the time, but we don't teach them how, and we don't tell them where to pay it. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's just words being thrown out. Um so you know, so this is the ability to focus is dependent on the state of your nervous system, um, and blood pressure is also dependent on the state of the nervous system. So there' somewhere in between there, there's going to be a correlate between like, well, what is yoga really doing on a you know neurophysiological level, which is affecting these things so that people with back pain, people who have uh, cardiovascular problems, people who have anxiety, people who are just looking for some meaning in their lives can all walk into a yoga class, do the same, you know, one simple thing and start to feel better. And so why is this? How is this? I think it has a large part to do with the nervous system, particularly the downregulation of the sympathetic nervous system and the toning of the of the vagus nerve.
0: Yeah, let's, t- let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about, uh, you know, in your book, you talk about um, the polyvagal theory and how that also is part of this understanding and listeners on this podcast know that we've had, uh, various practitioners and, uh, and neuroscientists and, and neurologists who, who talk about the, the, the vagus nerve, the longest cranial nerve inside the body. Mm-hmm. And it controls everything from our, uh, ability, our heart rate variability to, um, uh, uh our ur- yeah, urination and, and orgasm. And there's so many other things that it controls inside the body. But, um, Expand on a little bit further, and I think let's start off with the polyvagal theory, and how is that important to this understanding of what yoga is doing and what's actually happening inside the
1: body? Okay, so uh, vagus nerve is the 10th cranial nerve. It stems out from the brain stem. Uh, It goes into the trachea, into the larynx, into the voice box, into the heart, into the lungs, into our diaphragm, and that's all uh, above the diaphragm. These are the main places that it touches, um, and then below the diaphragm, it's going into the liver, into the spleen, into the pancreas, and into the intestines. Um, so, uh, and also, I believe, into the stomach. Uh, now, the vagus nerve is 80% of the parasympathetic nervous system. Parath- parasympathetic nervous system is responsible for rest, digest, repair, and restoration, Sympathetic nervous system is moving us towards activity through release of adrenaline and um, norepinephrine and things like that. So, um, and as well with the vagus nerve, 80% of those nerves are sensory, meaning they travel from the visceral up to the brain, sending messages to the brain of what's happening in the lower part of the body. And only 20% of the vagus nerves are are sensory, sending nerves from the brain down to the body to tell the body. Yeah, most information is
0: going upwards in this bi-directional pathway.
1: Exactly. So a lot of the things we're doing in yoga, um, rhythmic breathing, stretching the body, twisting the body, compressing the visceral organs, are sending messages basically through the vagus nerve to the brain saying, I'm safe, I'm content, I'm being stretched, I'm being paid attention to. And it begins to affect our, you know, our brain chemistry and our nervous system chemistry as well. Um, so the polyvagal theory was proposed by Dr. Stephen Porges. And what it says is that we have different branches of the vagus nerve, um, that have developed over time and they respond in a hierarchical and predictable fashion to the world around us. So for example, when we, and the, the, Vagus nerve below the diaphragm are unmyelinated and above the diaphragm are myelinated. So the ones above the diaphragm, they're going to send messages a lot quicker. Um, And um, so, for example, below the diaphragm, this is related primarily to immobilization, which is the freeze part of fight or flight. Um, This is a deep safety mechanism which will come during a traumatic experience or when our life is uh, deeply threatened
0: yeah and we see again. animals do it sometimes play
1: dead exactly animals play dead and people play dead as well um, That's if right. they're being attacked or abused um or even if you've had a traumatic experience in your past and then you're triggered by it with something else you might shut down as well yeah so protection th- mechanism exactly exactly and then we have fight or flight which is ruled by the sympathetic nerves uh which is Perceiving danger and threat and then responding to it by running away or or fleeing. And then the last part of the vagus nerve is our prosocial interaction, which is stimulated by the vagus nerves passing through the voice box so we can change our tone of voice. And the vagus touching the nuclei associated with the corners of the eyes and the corners of the mouth where we display emotion and facial expression. So the tone of the vagus nerve, meaning the um, information flows that pass through it, when they are toned, then you can hear and also attaching to nuclei in the ears as well, you can hear my tone of voice so you know if I'm being affectionate or if I'm being angry. You can read my facial expression so if I'm smiling with my eyes and my mouth, you know it's genuine. But if I'm only smiling with my mouth and my eyes are in a cold, dead stare, then you know your nervous system will then respond with fight or flight because you can read that guy's he looks a little bit freaky. He's coming after me. There's something wrong with his genuine eyes. genuine
0: with it. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So the hierarchical response is going to be that you can read my tone of voice and my facial expression, and your vagus nerve is responding in kind to the, the, the signals that I'm giving. So we basically co-regulate each other depending on um, our emotional state, our nervous system state, and how well we're able to read each other.
0: And it's less, it's not as brain heavy as we're understanding as we go deeper in this research. Our, it's almost like our body sometimes is deciding how to feel.
1: Yes. And passing that information up to our brain and our brain is interpreting it. And then thought is the last part of the equation. So yes. we, you know, if we feel um, attracted to someone and we like instantly fall in love, it's a sensation and a feeling first and a thought later. Mm -hmm. So we place a lot of emphasis on the thought part of it. You know, like I'm feeling love. But actually the first thing you're doing is you're feeling a feeling. You're feeling a feeling. And then you objectify it into a thought. And then it becomes a problem. So let's go back to yoga. Mm -hmm.
0: What is yoga's role with this? You know, you uh, were part of the movement, the larger movement of putting yoga on the map. You never sought out to do that. You just happened to have... You happen to have uh, be a great teacher, who then had some very notable people in a strong community in New York, and for a long time, people never really thought of yoga and science together. Uh, but with the work that you're doing, you are really showing that connection that uh, that gives the backbone to. These anecdotal things that you knew were happening, and many other people knew were happening. So, how does the vagus nerve in particular, what's happening when somebody's doing yoga that there might be a sense of soothing and allows to go deep into the uh, process of relaxing the vagal, vagus nerve?
1: Okay, so um, this is a, one of my favorite topics, and a real aha moment for me was listening to a lecture that Stephen Porges was giving about something he called the neural exercises, that there were four basic exercises which you see in all different religious traditions, which is tonifying for the vagus nerve. Um, And when the vagus nerve is toned, then there's a reduction of inflammation, better cardiovascular health, improved HRV, heart rate variability. Um, And as well, when there's less inflammation in the body, there's less inflammation in the mind and in the emotions. Uh, there's a decreased risk for cardiovascular disease, certain types of cancers, diabetes, and digestive disorders such as IBS. So all of these things are, you know, neural um, control of, of inflammation. So the four neural exercises are posture, breathing, vocalization, and behavior. And when I heard him talk about this, I thought, that's yoga those those are the eight limbs of yoga right there right we do yoga postures and he said through posture even just sitting up straight or bending forward you're um stimulating the baroreceptors around the carotid arteries where the vagus nerve comes close by which are going to monitor and control blood pressure so simply sitting up straight meditating is basically exercising your baroreceptors around the carotid arteries next vocalization like chanting or Breathing with sound, like the ocean breath, which is very popular in Ashtanga yoga and in um, yoga for uh, trauma-informed yoga. It's a very soothing, calming kind of a breath where you make a whispering sound in your throat. It's done by t- slightly tightening the glottis and making a hissing sound in the throat.
0: Like the Ujjayi breathing, basically.
1: And this is stimulating the, the vagus nerve in the trachea. Uh, you have vocalization and a very soothing kind of vocalization. Plus, you're extending your exhale to make the sound, which is going to downregulate the sympathetic nervous system, and upregulate or make more dominant parasympathetic. So that's breathing. Uh, then uh, that's vocalization. The next is just regular breathing. Um, which is going to the rhythmicity of the breath, especially if, say, if your abdomen is coming out a little and going back in, these rhythmic movements of the diaphragm are sending signals to the vagus nerves attaching in the intestines and to the microbiome of, of the soothing type of rhythmicity. Because quite often our breathing patterns are interrupted through stress or through anxiety.
0: Yeah, we hold Um, tension in our body. Exactly. It obstructs how we breathe. And then we're often bent and
1: down. Exactly. And that affects breathing. Exactly. So now you're you're put in the situation where there's this smooth in and out where you're focusing and having this awareness of this cycle of breathing. And this is sending signals to your nervous system that everything is becoming calm everything is getting balanced and you incorporate that into you know the vocalization of the breath and your posture and then the last thing is behavior Um, so things like kindness and appreciation and gratitude are going to strengthen HRV and vagal tone and anxiety and anger are going to interrupt the flows of information which are going through the vagus nerve as well as interrupt heart rate variability this has been shown in a lot of research so what do we have for behavior in yoga We have the yamas, which are, you know, trying to not cause harm, being honest, um, not stealing, sexual responsibility, and not grasping for things that um, we don't have or we don't need. These are the five basic precepts in yoga. Um, Behavior is a very important part of the yoga practices. And so right there, we have like the entire eight limbs incorporated in the four neural exercises. And I thought, oh my God, this is it.
0: This is yoga. This is why it works. And in a way, there's this like, yoga is the practice, just like we were talking about teaching kids how to tie their shoelace or teaching them about any aspects, mathematics, reading, writing. Yoga is the teaching of, in a way, a self-soothing so that you know how to self-soothe yourself. Because when you don't know how to self-soothe, when you don't know how to, um, you know, Dr. Porges, one of the things that they talk about in the work in trauma is that it's not so much the memory of a traumatic event. Let's say Something bad happened to somebody when they were younger. It's more the physiological response that happens in the body when that memory is brought back up through whatever it might be. You think about it, or you have a triggering event. And a lot of the uh, individuals that are on the ACE that that score high on the ACEs study, the adverse childhood effects study, um, there is a strong link with adverse childhood ex- uh, um, effects experiences and substance abuse. So if we don't know how to self-soothe. We're gonna go look for something else to sort of suppress the body, and and sort of uh, try to do our best to numb the pain.
1: Exactly, and um, I mean it's a very uh, it's a very challenging thing for um, people to deal with, but in a good yoga setting, you can be provided with a context to find safety in your body and find safety in your nervous system, and begin to heal. So a lot of the kids that we work with in different areas of the country feel immediate effects of this ability to self-regulate and to self-soothe and particularly to deal with things like anger or frustration. That through very basic breathing exercises and a few simple yoga positions, that they're getting back in touch with their bodies in a way that they haven't been before. Um, And trauma and growing up in adverse situations helps us you know puts us in a in a position sometimes where we disassociate from actually being embodied and we begin to live in ideas or thoughts but not really live in our bodies and the mind body is a continuum like there is no distinction between our mind and our body thinking is a physical process you know as you know we we have a thought and neurons are firing and neurotransmitters are released and our body is responding in particular ways and a debris is left in the brain from thinking so thinking is physical and moving is physical being is physical you know experience is physical Uh, let's like leave aside all the you know consciousness and uh enlightenment or any of that stuff just at a very basic level the mind body is a continuum like there's no distinction between a thought and how it affects our body because in and how we express who we are through our bodies if you are depressed people will say that's an emotion or that's a mental state but i see in your body that you're depressed because you're hunched over and your face is drawn you know you can't hide it um as some people can't hide it that's true um and uh, and if you're happy that's going to be readable also because our our emotions and our thoughts are expressed through the body as a continuum. So if there is a bifurcation between being in our body and the feelings we've had because of the experiences we've had, we can begin to reconnect that bifurcation by starting with the body and this is what is called a bottom up approach where the first thing we start to do is we say okay we're not going to worry about the thinking process that you have in regards to this we're going to start with your brain stem we're going to start with regulating your breathing which you you know you've never thought about breathing consciously before so now as soon as you start to think about breathing consciously you bring yourself out from the limbic system which is overriding your ability to strategically think just by choosing to take a conscious thought a conscious breath we are bypassing the firing of the limbics or the inflammation of the limbic system or the activity of the limbic system and re-engaging the prefrontal cortex so now you can make a choice and that happens very quickly and it can happen just from consciously choosing to breathe because the survival function when it kicks in um then The respiration will go at its own pace. The heartbeat will go at its own pace. There won't be that variability there. But when someone says to you, okay, let's slow down your breathing. Let's, you know, let's take a long, slow inhale. Now extend your exhale. You do that for a few minutes. You automatically bypass this sympathetic response and you re-engage the prefrontal cortex. So you can begin to choose, okay, I'm going to take another breath. You know, I'm going to Chill out here for a moment. I'm gonna reorient myself.
0: It's a reminder of the body that everything is okay, especially with our thoughts projected into the past and the future. We use the body to access the mind. Mm. You know, the way that uh, my business partner, Dr. Mark Heitman says it is that, you know, for a long time we've known about, um, we've known that the brain can impact the body. We know that when we, we, the way we used to think about it, like the way that they used to think about it traditionally in medicine is that you can get so stressed out, you can get an ulcer, right? but we've forgotten that the body can impact the brain yeah. and that paying attention to the body and what we do to the body, we do to the brain. Yes. And this is the work that you're highlighting here.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, John Rady in his book, Sparks, he goes on about this a lot, um, that, you know, our brain basically has evolved and our nervous system has evolved too, um, for us to move, you know, that's why we have a brain. Um, and it's, you know, in the, in the structure of the brain has a lot to do with the internalization of movement. Um, we didn't need to move. We wouldn't have a brain or a nervous system. It's true. Okay. So, you know, that's why moving he says very nicely, the thing that makes us think is also the very same thing that makes us move. So when we move in particular ways, we're exercising that same thing, which makes us think. So the brain to the mind, um, you know, the, the brain is not creating thought. Thought is processed through the brain or the mind uses the brain to process thinking and emotions and all these different types of things. So that's a separate conversation. Um, but from just a physicalist point of view, that thing which processes thought, which is our brain, is the very same thing which processes movement and makes us move. So by moving in particular ways, we're going to influence the way that thought is processed as well. And when we influence the way that thought is processed, we can influence our perceptions. And this is very key when it comes to dealing with stress. So stress perception is, um, you know, not all stress is bad. Quite a lot of stress is good. Um, Stress helps us grow. It challenges us. It helps to build resiliency in the nervous system. You know We don't want everything to just be like calm and cozy and floating on clouds all the time because then there's no growth. So um, the perception we have about stress is going to determine how we deal with the challenge. And if we think that stress is okay, that a challenge is okay, I can rise up to it, then this is like a positive stress perception that will help us grow. Of course, we shouldn't be chasing after stress all the time, but when it comes our way, we're going to have this positive perception of it. And our perception changes are going to occur when there is this nice integration of flow of information between the body the brain and the processing of thinking and perception
0: it's quite a distinction it's the shift from i'm in a struggle to i'm in a challenge yeah and that challenge is tough but i'm going to embrace it as a challenge even on a mitochondrial level you know all the research that's being done through wim Hof and cold therapy is that wow Uh, maybe an extreme bout of cold for a short period of time that people work themselves up to is actually a signaling effect to tell our body to kill off all the weaker or the older mitochondria and then grow new ones inside of the body so that we can be more resilient. But if we don't have those stressors that are there, our body can sort of average out and not be as resilient, be more prone to becoming sick and uh, other challenges that
1: are there. Yeah, resiliency comes from challenge. Um, It comes from, like, a little bit of stress that you have to rise up to. Uh, And, um, you know, it's described as bending without breaking, and that's resiliency. And it's an important key thing because if we're not resilient, then even small things will knock us over. It's true. I think it's an important
0: conversation in this day and age, especially with, um, you know— there's people that have been go through so much trauma, and it's so amazing that there's a national conversation on trauma from all different aspects. It could be uh, really bad, poor conditions, or challenging parental situations. It could be s- sexual trauma, which women are are often uh, the receivers of that, and have been the receivers of that for such a long time. And things are really starting to shift, at least the awareness inside a society of of protecting them and having that conversation, but. But primarily, the the it's been about the conversation. And while it's good to have access to talk therapy, even talk therapists that we've had on the podcast before, like Dr. Drew Ramsey says, trauma is not stored in the brain, it's stored in the body. Mm-hmm. So while talk therapy can be useful, we often find it much more useful if people are doing things like yoga or doing things like, Uh, other modalities that will help them figure out where in the body this trauma might be stored so that they can start to work on it and then hopefully build some of that resilience to um, support their nervous system.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and the opposite is quite true also that there are a lot of people who are only doing yoga who are masking the things that they really need to address, and where some therapy would actually perhaps do them some good. Hmm. Um, well said. Thank and, you for um, that. And so, I, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, I never discount any modality when it comes to healing. Right. Um, and sometimes people can become overly obsessed with their bodies through yoga and begin to miss the point of why we're practicing at all.
0: Let's talk about that. Uh, in your book you talk about how the ancient yogis weren't focused on the perfection of postures but the important relationship of the mind body and spirit what's what's the purpose of yoga in your eyes you know you've talked about the science of it but really i know this sounds like a very basic question but what is yoga for the person that's out there that's not listening when you say yoga you can conjure up a lot of different images what's the basics of yoga in your eyes
1: i stick with very. Um, traditional views which is yoga is basically about your mind so there was a a yogi named Patanjali he was a rishi or a sage and he about 2,000 or 2,500 years ago took all of the teachings of yoga that existed up until that point in time many of them were oral teachings and organized them into a coherent text called the Yoga Sutra Uh, and in the Indian philosophical traditions um, the philosophy there is called a darshana, and a darshan means a point of view or a viewpoint on reality, basically. And there are six main ones in the Hindu tradition, and yoga is one of them. And, um, sutra, the uh, same word sutra means a stitch, so, or a thread. So, through all these simple, small verses, they're basically stitching together an entire teaching related to one topic. And, the um, the sutras maybe are only made up of a few words, but they have a lot of meaning behind them. So Patanjali in his Yoga Sutra says the second verse says um, uh, he gives like an equation. He says Yogas Chitta Vritti Nirodha, which means that Yoga equals the Nirodha of the Vrittis in Chitta. Okay, so now we know the word Yoga. Um, whatever you know, you might think of it. Nirodaha means the selective elimination or the stilling or the gradual stilling of the vrittis, which are the fluctuations or the movements in the field of awareness, of chitta. So what is yoga? It's the process of selectively eliminating all of the different movements or thoughts in the field of your awareness that are other than who you really are. So it's the removing of all of our narrative, all of our stories, all of the things that we identify with that are other than who we really are, and replacing it only with direct access to pure being. So that's what yoga is. So how do you do that? That's what the rest of his book is about There are many different ways. Uh, asanas or yoga post- postures is one entrance way. Pranayama or the breathing practices which balance the nervous system is another way. Those are usually done together. And then there's um, practices that involve the sense organs. Sense organs, what happens through them? We perceive the world around us through our sense organs. You know, We look at each other, we hear things, we smell things, we taste and we touch. We have a constant contact with the world through the sense organs. But what powers them is perception. So the way that I look at you, the way you look at me is going to be modified by the perceptions that we have from how we were brought up. You know, do I, you know, do you look at me and you see me as, you know, whatever you might see me as, depending on your upbringing. Um, Now, perception can, is like bidirectional also, like the vagus nerve is bidirectional, perception is bidirectional. We can perceive outwardly or we can perceive inwardly. So when we begin to perceive inwardly what our inner condition is with that same power of perception, that's called pratyahara, or the withdrawal of the sense organs to perceive inwardly, similar to like interoception. Uh, And then there's concentration and meditation and then unity consciousness practices. So all those different things are different ways of beginning to work with this field of awareness, which is quite often clouded by thoughts. And we identify with those thoughts. Some are you know, constructive and some are negative. Um, but most of those thoughts are hiding us from who we really are. So we need to figure out how to, how to navigate those. And that's what yoga is essentially.
0: And when people are out there listening, looking to get some of the benefits that we talked about in the science that you were sharing earlier, Mm -hmm. will any yoga do, are there, is there a right way? Is there a wrong way to do yoga? Um, I know people, there are probably infinite debates that are out there, like in all aspects when it comes to diet, when it comes to meditation, when it comes to who the best football team is or the best way to play anything, there's always going to be a debate. But when it comes to the science that you talk about inside of your book and the work that you have done, um, together with the, the community, uh, will just about any yoga practice do
1: well. I haven't seen all of the yoga practices and it's difficult to say that everything is always good.
0: Right. What do you think about goat yoga? I'm I think goat kidding. yoga is the <laughs> best kind of yoga.
1: <laughs> it's just so hard to get the goat piss out of your yoga mat. It's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I cut yeah, you it's off. fine. Um, the um, no, but it's a super valid question. Like, can you slap the word yoga on anything and have it be yoga? Uh, that's a whole other conversation. But to answer your question, From what I've noticed, most of the yoga systems out there are making people feel better. Um, And I think that has to do with breathing and moving your body at the same time and having a few minutes of stillness during your day. Pausing to re-embody yourself is a good thing. And yoga has um, some basic things that everyone seems to be doing, which is addressing the balance of the nervous system. And these are relaxation, relaxation, Moving the body, breathing, being present, and practicing some type of appreciation for the abilities that we have um, to do something like, you know, a yoga class. All those things seem to occur in most of the yogas that are prevalent today in India and in America and in Europe, all over the world. Um, and I think that's why so many people do yoga. You know, if there are 36 million plus people in America doing yoga, they're not all doing the same kind of yoga I do. They're doing lots of different stuff. Um, The fact that they keep going to class means that it's working. And how is it working? Stress levels are reducing. Um, uh, Feeling of, you know, concentration improves. Better states of well-being, better states of mind, better better physical health. Maybe uh, more sensitivity to diet and nutrition more sensitivity to emotional fluctuation, more sensitivity to not being overreactive, being more responsive. These are things that everyone seems to be experiencing, like no matter what kind of yoga they do. So I'm pretty much like pro yoga.
0: Because when you get more in your body, you become more aware of all the inputs. Yeah. The common yeah. thoughts, foods, other aspects. When you look back now and you see... uh, uh. You know, you're still a young man now. When oh, yeah. You see the younger version of you uh, who's off to India wanting to learn to just understand for himself. Uh, did you ever think that yoga would be where it is now?
1: Uh, no. I had like no idea. Like back then, you could not make a living as a yoga teacher, uh, you know, and now you can. You definitely can. Um, uh, but Eve, I just want to say one thing Please. about the. Um, uh, about all yogas, also, is that the th- the thing that I think could be improved these days yeah. are the teaching standards. Mm. Uh, there, you know, there's 200 hour teaching level where for I don't even know where this idea of like a 200 hour training came to be a thing, but now it's a thing, and that's basically like doing a month of yoga. You know, that's like five days a week or six days a week for a month for eight hours a day of a course, and now all of a sudden you can be a certified yoga teacher and. Frankly, like, that's ridiculous. You can't learn how to teach anything in a month that actually requires you to practice it for a long period of time. Um, So I think that this whole idea of 200-hour training, a 500-hour training, should not give you eligibility to be a yoga teacher. I think that you really need more years behind you before you can get in front of a class and and start to guide people. And people... um, argue the other way against that saying well as long as nobody's getting hurt you know it should be okay but the problem is is that yoga is not just about your body yoga is about your nervous system about your emotions about your mind and about your experience of yourself also Um, you also have to have uh, this um, a perspective of time to realize how little you really know and that the only thing you can give someone is your own experience and so that brings with it a certain level of imposed humility that you know that I can only bring so, someone as far as I've gone. If I've only gone 200 hours, I can't really bring someone more than a month of yoga. You know, That's as far as I can do it. And I think there, there should be more recognition of that in the field. If yoga is going to be important, influential, and integrated, then we need to improve the standards of what it takes for someone to actually teach Yeah. and to recognize that there's more to it than just doing poses. Okay. If you're just doing poses, like, you know, don't call it yoga, call it exercise, do something else. But there needs to be this recognition that you can only, you know, you need to have some practice behind you. You need to have some years and people can walk off the street having never done yoga do a two hundred hour training or a weekend training, and then call themselves a teacher. And there's something that um, there's not—it's not quite right. Um, sure. It's not realistic, and I think that that needs to be thought about a little bit more seriously.
0: And I think that the natural balance of you know everything is that as anything explodes, yeah, and you have uber uber famous people walking into your class—not that you sought out this attention at mm-hmm. all—things get written about trends happen and then the market is the market you yeah. know people get into it they look for opportunities and most yo know, i think the one aspect i'm less worried about and you're more in this industry than i am but the equivalent would be let's say health coaches mm-hmm. that are out there i'm more worried about people that are trying to convince these yoga teachers and health coaches that for uh you know only a small amount of money they're going to be ready to teach or and more importantly ready to make money off of that i think that's where a little bit of the disingenuineness Mm -hmm. happens um of kind of capitalizing on people's um yearning to try to match their their income with what they're passionate about and i think a lot of the the schools that are out there in any industry that you have they're sort of playing on the idea that oh this is quick and easy just pay us this money and now you'll be ready to teach and make a living and and most people are not ready to teach and make a living. They need more experiences and components. But I think that anytime something gets big, we're always going to see that there. And hopefully there's a self-correction. I'm so glad that you wrote this book because – Uh, it's through education that it happens. You going on podcasts, people asking questions, people even themselves reflecting,
1: uh, it's very hard to stop momentum once it gets starts started without education. It is. It really is. And I'm all for the spreading of yoga. I think this is a very good thing, but I think that the industry needs to be a little bit more self-critical in regards to what we are unleashing on the public. Yeah. And um, so this is, um, you know, the, uh, the resiliency challenge of yoga right now is to rise up a little bit more, I think, in thinking about what it is that we're trying to give to people. And there's a lot there in the package that needs to be considered. Um, and, you know, this is not everybody, but this is a, it's a large part of it because there's a lot of people being churned out. Uh, as yoga teachers these days, not all of them are teaching, of course. Yeah. Um. And uh, a lot of the programs are very, very good. Uh, but I think you know a little bit of um. You know, self-regulation is very hard within an industry, uh, and the yogis do not want to be regulated by the government. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of pushback for government regulation with yoga. You know, like no one's regulating dance programs or martial arts. So they say, why should they regulate yoga? Are
0: you in favor of it? Of government government regulation in yoga
1: well no not really yeah it seems Uh, to be that the government anything that they would get
0: involved in when it comes to that teaching um, you know would be would be would not necessarily make it any better
1: no Um, but I think that no regulation is not always helpful when something starts to grow also but then the question comes okay well who's gonna regulate it Um, you know this you look at Wall Street, you know, self-regulation didn't work well for the big banks. That's right. You know?
0: You know, I would say that the one component with uh, yoga is there's the there's the mind-body connection. And it, and it seems to be that, like a lot of things, um, many people find or happenstance upon a yoga class in their town, wherever they might live. And it might be purely the physical that brings them in. And then they start graduating. They start graduating and going deeper. And some people are lucky enough to come to much deeper rooted schools that have a lot more tradition and understand that. But overall, I feel like, you know, human beings are smart. They'll figure it out. And uh, and the most important thing is the people that have the right knowledge like yourself to get out there and share.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I have the right knowledge, but I have a bunch of opinions. I think at a certain <laughs> point, you know, I've been playing around with the idea of the past few weeks um and, and it's come up in the past also of an actual like yoga college. Um or an affiliated BA in yoga with some university or something like that. Yeah. Now, they have some MA programs like it. Um LMU has one, and Maryland has one, and I think there might be one in Chicago. I'm not too sure, but um like an actual BA or a BS in yoga. Could be a really interesting thing where you have, you know, you have uh, the uh, the Swedish massage schools. If you want to be a massage therapist, you need to have some like deep training. If you want to be an acupuncturist, there's a deep training that goes into that. I think that yoga fits in along the lines with those modalities where you really do need anatomy, physiology, nervous system, um, as well as some understanding of psychology in order to be teaching a wide range of people. Um, And what
0: what I'm excited about is that as you, as we continue and people stand on your shoulders, just like you've stood on other people's shoulders and start to look at yoga as a therapeutic introduction in, in schools for, for kids that are experiencing bullying Mm -hmm. for bullies. Then I start to see the demand out there that, uh, we need people of a higher certification because it's much more sensitive situations. And I think that, Starting that conversation, getting the science out there, that's where I'm really excited about yoga being brought in. I mean, there was a time where acupuncture wasn't covered by insurance. yeah. And then it started to become covered by insurance because of all the science and the data that's out there. And I really look forward to the day that, uh, you know, the, the, the bully in school who is only that way because his parents yeah. say... For every one nice thing that they say to them, they say another 10 negative things. Yeah, and if they say, if they say a nice thing. If they say a nice thing at all. The you know? urban
1: yogis, you know, they go into the schools and one of the first things they ask the kids in their classes is, you know, how are you feeling today? You know? And they very well know that there's never a time during the day for any of these kids or for a lot of the kids where someone will ask them how they're feeling.
0: Yeah, it's so true. This American Life, uh, the podcast and radio show, they did a feature one time on, um, I believe it's in the Bronx, it's called Baby College is the name of the place. Mm-hmm. It's an organization that was literally taking parents, first-time parents, second-time parents in in the inner cities who they themselves often grew up in in very sort of unstable households, households with a lot of challenges, maybe one-parent households, so they are communicating to their kids that they're having the same way that they were communicated to. And what they realize is that the they didn't know that saying nice things and doing the soothing voice, you know, polyvagal theory, mm. when we do the soothing baby talk and how soothing that is to a child. They would give, you know, their kids tough love thinking that that was the right situation because that's what they experienced. Or they wouldn't say they would only criticize when something went wrong because often these parents were working multiple jobs and they didn't have that. So, you know, it's almost like there has to be a whole system-wide re-education and, um, of, of how to communicate with kids and be there for them so that we don't pass on that, um, that basically generational trauma from one generation to another. Mm -hmm. And I think yoga can be a huge part about that. When you uh, start off, you start off your book and you said, there's two main things that you wanted to explore inside this approach for the book. You said, you wanna explore uh, where do consciousness and biology meet? Mm -hmm. And the second one was, is happiness a physiological experience? Do you feel you're closer to answers on those two points? Let's start off with the first one. Where do consciousness and biology meet?
1: Okay, so that was one of the jumping off questions that I had, Um, you know, is consciousness expressing itself through our physiology, through the biological makeup of our body? Um, Is our body consciousness? Is, you know, what's the story there? And uh, I, I decided that I didn't know if that was the right question, but it was a jumping off point for me. And the reason that I don't know if it was the right question was because it's not one that anyone has been able to answer yet with any degree of certainty. So I modified that question a little bit to say, uh, or to, to to examine where in our body can we find representations of different states of consciousness that we can work with um, because consciousness is sort of an ineffable thing you know um, is from a vedantic point of view everything is consciousness there is no mind body that's an illusion uh, you know there is, the world is is illusory as well it's just all consciousness modified as the same thing this is a vedantic point of view uh, from uh from a materialist point of view, then, you know, the brain is creating consciousness. Um, So these are two completely different worldviews. And I didn't want to get caught up in that discussion or that argument. I wanted to take for granted that there is something like consciousness that makes us aware so that we can experience the world and our bodies and everything. Um, But sometimes this awareness gets clouded by misperception or by trauma or by other things. Uh, We experience either depression or anxiety or a lack of fulfillment. And why is it that when we move our bodies in particular ways and we breathe in particular ways, some of these clouds begin to lift? Like, Why is it that something that seemingly is mental changes when we do something in a directed physical way? And that became very interesting for me. Um, And the correlative question or the follow-up question was that if that's the case, if if our minds change so much that we can't even hold a thought in our mind for more than a few seconds and that all the time through the day our minds are always changing and it's very hard to even maintain one constant stream of thought through the day. Like if you just try to think of one thing, like, you know, After a minute or so, your mind has gone somewhere else. Less than a minute, 12 seconds. So if that's the case, if our mind can't hold on to anything, then how can happiness be experienced in the mind when the mind can't hold on to anything for more than a few seconds? As soon as you try to hold on to a mental idea of happiness, like it's going to disappear. So happiness can't be mental because you can't hold on to anything in your mind. So therefore, this idea of chasing after mental happiness has to be false as well. So where does happiness exist within us? Can it be found on a physiological level? Um, And I thought, well, maybe this is another one of the things that the yogis were getting at by starting with physiological practices like asanas and pranayama to find joy in the body. And then... To let the mind be an open field so that joy radiates through the mind without it being a thought without it being an idea so that um happiness becomes or joy becomes uh, a state of being and not an idea not a thought
0: which is so important in this movement of
1: positivity positive thinking positive thinking exactly and this is like sort of like one of the things that it was a response to that positive thinking doesn't work yeah because I, you can't think and hold on to a thought for more than a few seconds totally and you forget
0: and there's thoughts are like popcorn they come and go yep. and they're like cars on the road and they they're that but it's like the physiological attachment to a thought that reverberates throughout the body or even everybody's had the, anybody who's done yoga Uh, for a little while has had the experience of being so mentally enamored with some concept or idea or something that might not be working out in their life. You go do a class, uh, you come out and you're like, why was I worried about that thing? Yeah, And that's the beauty of stepping into our, our, our body and that, and embracing the fact that happiness is throughout our body. We don't need to be thinking about being happy. In fact, thoughts are so much more like, Neutral. I remember uh, the first time that I met uh, Eckhart Tolle, uh, the author. You know, he's he's been sharing for through his work and in, in the power of um, now that it's not that we have to force ourselves to think, you know, positive. If we're present and we're real with what's happening here, if we're in our body, if we understand the sensations, if we are with it, there's no. We don't have to artificially prop our mind up through some sort of Pushed positive thinking. Yeah, you
1: can. It doesn't work. In fact, the studies on positive thinking show that number one, people who only positive think all the time as an experiment, um, they think that they've already accomplished their goals. So they apply less energy and effort towards achieving their goals. Mm. Where people who do some positive thinking and they also troubleshoot at the same time by going, okay, well, what if this happens and it doesn't go as smoothly as I think it's going to? then they have already set up some mental challenges that they navigate in their mind so they apply more energy to the things that they want to accomplish so that positive thinking along with a little bit of problem solving is more effective and will give you more energy towards achieving your goals than just positive thinking on your own where you think i've already accomplished my goals right i don't
0: in in business you don't you don't
1: want positive thinking. You no. just want real, honest want, yeah. talk
0: and the resilience to handle each yeah. situation
1: and pivot. So I want to just go back to this idea Please. of physiological happiness for a moment. So um, so where this led me to was that in the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali says that there are five obstructions to the field of the mind that are clouding or covering up your true being, um, your unlimited sense of awareness um you know the field of self-knowing and these things are number one not knowing um who you are and when you don't know who you are then you identify with a narrative the story that you tell about yourself which is cultural and genetic and everything and that story is predicated by the things that you like and the things you don't like so we identify and craft our story based on the things that we find pleasing you know i um I like cardigans, but I don't like turtlenecks. I like the Red Sox, but I don't like the Yankees. I like chocolate, but I don't like eggplants. Um, I like, you know, Democrats, but I don't like Republicans. All of these types of things, we have something that we like set against something we don't like. Both of those are attachments. I'm attached to what I like. I'm also attached to what I don't like. That creates a story that I tell about who I am, which is feeding this false sense of self. Uh, And then... The clinging to those things creates a fear, which is, who will I be if I'm not my story? And that's essentially like a fear of death or a fear of extinction, that I need my story to exist. To give me existence. Exactly. So then, and now I'm going to cling to that existence. So these are the five things. They're called the cletias. Um, So I started thinking, okay, so where do these kletias exist in our physiology? Because they have to exist somewhere because it said in the Yoga Sutra, that by doing tapas or postures in pranayama, by chanting mantras, and by surrender to the unknown, unpredictability, the kleshas automatically begin to soften. They begin to thin themselves out. So the light of awareness shines through. So, I started thinking, well, what's happening in the brainstem? This is where all of our survival functions are occurring. Now, we have survival of functions so that we stay alive. And... When we hold our breath for even a short time, our body says to us, it's time to start breathing or you're going (laughs) to die. You don't want to die because you want to cling to life. And that clinging to life is the last one of the kleshas, abhinivesha, the clinging to life, the fear of death, the clinging to the story. So our survival functions in the brain are um, the physical location of these kleshas and all of the survival functions, which are respiration, heartbeat, sexual reproduction, digestion, sleep, body temperature as well, all of these are related to the five kleshas, which are the covering of awareness. So that by doing practices that directly affect the brainstem function, we begin to weaken the kleshas, which are obstructing knowing who we are. Um, And so what are the practices that the yogis did? They would do practices to control the breathing, to slow the breathing. That's a brainstem function. They would do things like intermittent fasting, digestion, brainstem function. They would control sleep, another brainstem function. They would be celibate or control their sexuality, another brainstem function. They would control their um, their heart rate variability and their blood pressure. Through perception of the world around them, okay. as well as working with the body postures in particular ways. So every single practice of the yogis is affecting the brainstem and all of where the survival functions are. And all of those functions are the things which are going to help thin the wrong identity we have.
0: Almost like the veil of the veil of illusion, the Maya, the the, the sense of yeah the that if this doesn't happen and people see it on a daily basis in their own like if i don't eat by this time i'm gonna die exactly exactly and they haven't yet had the chance to practice and massage that part of the brain to know that it's it's gonna be okay what
1: happens if i don't breathe for a little while yeah who am i if i don't breathe for a little while what happens if i don't eat for a little while you know who am i going to be then where will my identity be so all of these things begin to weaken the narrative that we have about ourselves that I need to you know, breathe in this manner, I need to eat all the time, I need to do any of these things in order to maintain my story. So the changing of the survival functions, even for an hour a day, or for 20 minutes a day, changes our narrative. And that's Absolutely. happening in our brain function.
0: And then you go into the boardroom or your business, and somebody says, hey, this month we're down, and and it's not like, the extrapolation of people freaking out in all areas is okay we're down this month we're going to be down next month and then we're down for the year then i go out of, then i go out of business nobody loves me i am I'm, I'm sleeping I'm, on the street i'm sleeping on the street yep. i i die alone yep it all exactly. ends up going there and it goes there
1: in a fraction of a in second a
0: fraction of a second not yep. even with thought it's a yep. physiological thing yep. because that was our brain's survival mechanism yep. and so yoga is a pathway if i'm hearing you correctly Correct. To build that resilience and upgrade our software in our
1: brain, something like that. It also is to is to weaken the identity we have of being only you know these particular things. You know my narrative, the food I eat, you know right. the people I hang out with. It, you know to change the shift in perception of identity, and what that does is when that when that begins to weaken the narrative we tell about ourselves, the story we're telling we begin to open up to greater possibilities. Mm. And these greater possibilities are contained in higher brain functions, um, emotional vul- vulnerability, um, the, you know uh, a lessening of fear, uh, a change of perception of threat from the world around us, and then eventually opening up into compass- compassion and empathy in the cortical functions of the brain. Uh, the creativity of language and expression and art and seeing things in a holistic fashion until we have coherent brain um, functioning so we need to open up these pathways and we in the yoga practices we open from the bottom to the top mindfulness practices you're starting from top down and yoga you're doing both bottom up and top down um, so what you work towards is coherent functioning of the nervous system which is already in a symbiotic relationship with the world around us but we've forgotten we think that we're separate um when we were um last week we were with Deepak Chopra in Dharamsal and we had an audience with His Holiness the Dalai Lama Mm. and the Dalai Lama said this amazing thing he said uh, he always does but he said um you know if I think I'm the Dalai Lama and I think that I'm special and that everyone should treat me special because I'm the Dalai Lama then I become separate from everything and I become lonely Mm. And I didn't expect him to say lonely. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think anyone there expected him to say lonely. And that when you become lonely, you begin to separate yourself off from the people around you, from the world around you. Um, you would draw more into your own false idea of separateness. Um, and so he says that thinking you're special doesn't make you arrogant or give you a big ego. It makes you lonely and mm-hmm. in that loneliness there's this cascade of, of everything else. So the reaching out and connecting with people um, and the remembering that we are in part of an integrated whole, that this is all like this interdependent, you know, arising of phenomena all at the same time. Um, you know, these are the things that happen through smooth flows of information in the nervous system. And smooth flows of information from the nervous system to the world and back at us again in the symbiotic relationship. And that's where we experience a unified consciousness, where we experience the world as a unified whole, and that all of us that are, um, you know, in this play of, of consciousness are, are arising in it together at the same time.
0: Beautiful. Mic drop. Boom. I'm just in a meditative state right now, <laughs> which on the community side, which is also the beautiful thing about yoga as a, as a gathering of people and, and how, when we see other people also, and who are also experiencing that peaceful, compassionate state after class, during a class, building a sense of community, um, turns out we actually need people in our life. Our body gets information from others. Whether you consider yourself an introvert or or not, and people have different preferences and that sort of thing that are all there, but we use information from others to let us know sort of how are we doing in this world? Is everything safe? Is everything okay?
1: Exactly. Uh, this is I love Stephen Porges's um, uh, phrase on this is that we co-regulate each other, mm. um, and uh, through our nervous systems, you know, we are co-regulating each other, and this is really uh, important.
0: You know, part of your work out there and, and just. Thank you for the book. I'm about halfway through and cool. I'm really, really, really enjoying it. And uh, I think it's going to make a, uh, a huge difference that's out there. The book isn't the only way that you're getting this education out. You also do a yearly uh, conference, right? Yes. Can you tell us a little
1: about that? Yeah, it's called the Yoga and Science Conference. Yeah. I started it with Dr. Marshall who who is the guy who got me interested in science. And um, what we do is we bring researchers from around the world who are researching yoga and meditation and we asked them to present the findings that they have to the general public. Um, you know, there is a, there's quite a long tradition of the meeting of yoga and science. In the 1920s, Swami Kuvali at the Kaivalya in near Pune in India started doing Western medical research on yogis. And mm. he was the pioneer of it. And he said and what was he
0: looking at? do you know what he was like he, was he studying brain he, function or? yeah everything
1: yeah. Um, And um, basically what he said was that um, you know yoga is the best practice for healing um, the nervous system, the endocrine system, overall well-being. Uh, it's the best of all naturopathies, but some people need data and some people need to be shown in a very concrete manner what's happening. And so for that reason, we do research in yoga at his institute. So he was the pioneer. And um, there's a lot of that happening in India at the Vivekananda Center in in Bangalore. They have a whole research arm at Kaivalyadam. Um, Baba Ramdev has the Patanjali Yoga Institute where they do a tremendous amount of research, um, being spearheaded now by Dr. Shirley Tellis, who is the director of research up there. Uh, And at Kripalu, they have a a yearly symposium, which is run by Satbir Khalsa, um, where they bring very serious researchers to to present. But a lot of these things are being done primarily within the science circles. And what Marshall and I are trying to do is bring the scientists together with the end user, meaning, you know, the yogis uh, and the yoga teachers, so we can understand a little bit in layman terms what they're finding and how we can begin to apply that to our teaching and to our practices. And one of the examples that Marshall gives is that uh, aspirin has been used for thousands of years. It was willow bark that was being boiled down by the Egyptians and used for headaches and other things. And it wasn't until the 1700s that it was isolated as you know, the form of aspirin. But the mechanism of what it did to the platelets and how it affected the blood and how it worked on inflammation wasn't isolated as a chemical or or um, molecular um, structure until the 1970s. So from the 1700s, you know, people were still using it for basically, you know, anything, um, any type of illnesses, but they didn't know how it worked. And mm. We didn't know how it worked specifically until the 1970s. And once they found out what it did to platelets and other parts of the blood, it could be used for you know, um, people with heart disease or for headaches and, you know, to, now it's taken, you can take a baby aspirin. Everybody knows is, is a daily preventative for, for heart disease and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So there's
0: some questions about that, but I exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. So, um, so all the, anyway, there's some targeting of, the of the medicine when you know what it's acting on the
0: science okay? helped the precision thank of, you of its availability exactly
1: yes thank you and so this so marshall's argument is basically the same is true for yoga like when we know what it's acting on and how it acts on it we can use it in more targeted types of ways and we can begin to help people because we know specifically how to apply it in certain cases so generally speaking it's good like everyone should do it generally speaking it's good but there're also going to be cases where we know that it's going to be good in a very specific way mm. and that can be helpful for society.
0: It can be extremely helpful. Just yeah. going back to that example, there's so many places where one the one of the many things that I love about this, you know, the US is that uh you know like just the fitness culture that we have, you know, maybe originally it started off as like the weight loss culture, Mm -hmm. right? And it's evolved and people have gotten into it, but uh, there's this embracing of trying new things Mm -hmm. that are here. I, most of my family in India has never done yoga some breathing exercises and some things like that. And there's a little bit of like a familiarity. Oh, we know that, or we grew up with it, or you guys are turning it into this or turning into that. But I love the fact that over here in the States, we just embrace it and we go for it and we try it. And there's this openness to to try new things. And I can see as the science dials in and continues to dial in, yoga can be brought into, you know, like hospitals for very specific things. If the science shows that, wow, after your chemotherapy or after this or after, you know, this aspect, it can be super beneficial. Even though we all know that it works, the science helps tell that deeper, more
1: precise story. And it might be a simple thing is like helping people to regulate their breathing. Yeah. Teaching people how to breathe a little bit more efficiently. A very simple thing like that um, can, can be measured. So this year, um, we had um, we've ha- we have three conferences this year. We had one in New York. Um, we had about 370 people come. And uh, we had Dr. Stephen Porges, who presented polyvagal theory. We had Dr. Shirley Tellis presenting on pranayama's effects on the nervous system. Uh, we had someone, a doctor named Gail Parker, presenting on um, stress-based race trauma, um, which is basically the like PTSD based on your skin color. Everybody right. has it to some degree. And um, we had someone presenting on endothelial function and Bikram yoga. This was Dr. Stacy Hunter. Satbir Khalsa presented on all the different types of research being done on yoga. Deepak Chopra spoke. Um, so we had like a wide range of people. Um, Bethany Koch, who came over from Ireland, spoke about the upward spirals of um emotion that occurs with the loving kindness meditations and its effect on physical health Mm. just from practicing loving kindness um which is like the meta meditation uh that you find in buddhism and also in yoga so there's like a wide range of of people presenting and um and a lot of them are just people that marshall and i really wanted to listen to so then we had a conference in stockholm after and we have another one in zagreb croatia in june All Um, part
0: of the expansion of, of connecting yoga and the end consumer and raising awareness. Yeah.
1: And just, you know, um, uh, uh, lifting up our, our thinking process and our experiential process about what it is that we're doing and engaged in and how we can, um, integrate this into the, into an evolving culture.
0: You're doing another thing to connect, uh, the end consumer with, with techniques. You launched a, a breathing app and, uh, I think my notes say you did it with Deepak Chopra and Moby tell us about the breathing app
1: okay so uh, the breathing app is based on something called resonance breathing and resonance breathing is when you breathe between five to seven times per minute normally we breathe about 15 to 18 times per minute Um, so what you're doing is you're almost having uh, or cutting in half the the cycle of respiration And when we get to five to seven breaths per minute, which is basically inhaling for five or six seconds and exhaling for five or six seconds, the respiration pattern, the messages sent to the baroreceptors, which are controlling blood pressure or monitoring blood pressure and our heart rate variability all come into the same pattern flow, the same sinus wave that you'd see if you're measuring all at the same time normally these three patterns are doing their own thing they're not acting in a coherent manner or in a resonant manner but when the breath rate slows down to this these three functions come into the same coherent pattern that's why it's called coherence or resonance breathing and what that begins to do is it begins to reset our nervous system's response mechanisms it begins to balance homeostasis it um improves vagal tone it reduces inflammation and improves heart rate variability it's a very very simple thing um, and people often notice that
0: when they are in a natural state of relaxation they breathe that way they they will just yes. catch themselves breathing that way correct so if you would normally be breathing that way automatically when you're in a very natural state often when people are in nature or or just you know in a state where they just feel completely relaxed, their body's going to breathe that way. So why not step into it when we're not there? Or as a, as almost like a precautionary way to sort of bring, um bring more again, not to overuse this word, but bring more resilience to your body to keep you in that state.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what, um you know, the, the teachers of this type of breathing talk about. And one of the ways that it was one of the ways that it was discovered or investigated was that when Tibetan monks were being measured for brain activity in the studies that were being done, in yogis as well, they noticed that they, as soon as the the monks or yogis went into their meditative practices, their breathing pattern shifted to resonance, even Mm. if they weren't focusing on the breath. Um, So you can, for people who have a hard time meditating or say they can't meditate or they don't want to, but they know that they should, um, or think that they should. Instead, they can do the resonance breathing and it automatically brings the mind into a, a meditative state because the breath and the mind function are basically bi directional as well. So when you bring your breathing pattern into this um, frequency, it's a tenth of a hertz cycle per minute, which means a cycle of six. And for the brain wave patterns, when you go to a tenth of a hertz cycle, Per minute, it's a delta wave brain state, which is deep sleep with no dreams. Mm. And this is the state you go into when you meditate. You go basically into an awake, dreaming, uh, like non dreaming state. Um, It's the most restful state that the mind can get to, but you're conscious while you do it. So resonance breathing automatic meditation
0: and they can get all this from the app they can find it on the app store
1: ah yes it's a free app it's on the uh uh, itunes store and it's also on android uh deepak helped me with some of the science behind it and um we have sounds that you can breathe along with and Moby created those sounds for us it's beautiful it's called the breathing app um it's one of my favorite things if i could only pick one practice to do for the rest of my life i would choose resonance breathing because it's the single most effective practice that i've ever done
0: it's mm, a powerful statement. Eddie, we've talked about so many things and I really appreciate the way both here in this conversation and on the book in the book that you take these concepts and you really help us understand uh, the, the science is there, but it's matched with storytelling to help it really be understandable and uh, you actually do, you do this in a few different ways that, uh, you know, there's, there's different terms that have come from India that have made their way into sort of modern culture, you know, yoga is one, another one is karma, mm-hmm. you know, people, you, you can go on Instagram or you can go on social media and you can always see a, a meme about karma being a bitch or this or that. And, you know, people have different thoughts on karma. I was really fascinated by your thoughts on, on karma inside the book. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Uh, well, yeah, sure. Um, karma means action. Um, every action contains within it the result of that action already. Uh, we just don't know when that result is going to come about. So the idea of karma in, uh, this particular viewpoint is that there are three things. One, there's action and there is the impression from those actions. And then there is the desire which is ingrained into the impression that you have. So you eat some ice cream for the first time, and that's an action, eating the ice cream. It leaves an impression in your, or a memory of you either enjoyed it or you didn't. If you enjoyed the ice cream, then built into that memory of enjoying it is a desire to repeat the experience, which is called a vasana. So karma is the action, samskara is the memory or impression, And the vasana is the desire to repeat that experience or not repeat that experience. And this is basically what we're made up of. We are bundles of karma made up of memories, impressions, and desires to repeat or to not repeat the experiences that we've had. And this is how we go through our lives. And in yoga, what we want to do is begin untying this knot of karma, this bundle of karma that we all are. Mm. So we are basically bundles of karma that in that karma is expressed through our body, the way we speak, the way I hold ourselves, the activities we like to do, the things we have a propensity towards that we don't even like know how we got that propensity. How is it that I'm born in a Jewish family in New York City and I have this draw towards yoga that is all consuming and basically takes over my life? Like where did that come from? Uh, the indian answer is it comes from samskara from an impression well when did i get that impression well in a previous life okay. so does that mean i was reborn again I said no you weren't born at all but all of the impressions that make you up keep recycling themselves so all rebirth is is the impressions and the and the desires To repeat experiences, take a new form so they can continue to work themselves out. So um, that's what we are. We're we're a bunch of impressions working ourselves out, untying all the knots that we make. And we want to go through our lives trying to not make too many more knots.
0: Yeah, and one of the ways to do that is when we take care of ourselves and we give our body and therefore our mind and our brain the love it needs, we're no longer wrapped up only in ourselves. We have the bandwidth, we have the time, we have the freedom, we have the resilience, we have the awareness to start looking after other people who are less fortunate than us, who might be going through challenging circumstances, and not with pity, but with a deep sense of compassion of, okay, I'm here for a bigger reason. I'm not just here to focus on myself. I'm here to help others and be of service in the best way that I can.
1: Yeah, that's the best way to not think about yourself for a moment is to do something for somebody else. Mm. And, um, you know, to practice forgiveness and understanding and have some compassion and empathy, um, uh, some gratitude and appreciation. All of these things help to untie the, you know, the knots that we get ourselves into. Too much judgment, too many hard vast opinions about things having to be right. All of these things tighten the knots of, of righteousness. Um, and we want to loosen these knots so we can be a little bit more you know, free, a little bit more uh, connected and integrated you know, w- with people and not cause too much strife along the way. Um, in the yoga text, in the Bhagavad Gita, for example, it says that you should perform every action without a desire for a particular result. You do the action for the sake of the action. And when you do that, when you're fully immersed only in the performance of the action with no thought of getting something from it, you're not creating more karmic bondage, more karmic debt. Mm. And so that's the way to live your life, to live it fully, to live it deeply, um, to live it authentically, but not to have the expectation that you're going to get anything from living that way. Not fame, not money, not a place in heaven. Nothing, not even happiness. Just because you have to act. Mm. You have to express yourself. You have to be. But not to get anything extra. No add-ons. Only yourself.
0: Do it for the whole and and the holiness of that action itself.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Eddie, thank you for coming on the podcast. Where can our listeners find out more about you and find this incredible, well, we know where to find books these days. One simple thing, a new look at the science of yoga and how it can transform your life. In addition to the book, which they can find on bookstores and Amazon, how else can they uh, keep in touch with you and and check out your work?
1: Um, I have a website, eddystern.com, and that has my teaching schedule and links to the breathing app and some other work that I do. Uh, I have an Instagram account, at Eddie Stern, and that's primarily, that's the main social media that I use. I don't use Twitter or or Facebook. And uh, those are basically the two ways. Um, If you go on the website and you want to send me an email, all the emails come to me and I read them all at takes me time to respond sometimes, but eventually I get around to it. So that's uh, the, the way to get to me.
0: And they can go to yogaandscience.org
1: to see the conference that you host. They can. And they can also go to the urbanyogis.org to see some of our programs for reducing gun violence and harm reduction. Um, and um, I guess that's pretty much uh, about it.
0: Eddie, thank you for coming on the podcast and giving us a deeper understanding of yoga, the brain, the body, and the spirit. I so
1: appreciate you. It was a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you for having me.
0: Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your
1: health.